Diana of Themyscira, daughter of Hippolyta. In the name of all that is good, your wrath upon this world is over. Welcome to Kaboom! Goes the podcast, uh, the rebirth of this podcast, I should say, for Kaboom.com. I am Sarah Moran, the editor-in-chief and my co-host for this episode. Hi, I'm Matt Morrison. I am Kaboom.com's contributing editor. And I hope we aren't going to get sued by DC Comics for saying rebirth now. I know. <laughs> but that's why I wanted to say it, because I kind of feel like, in a way, this movie that we are about to discuss, as well as what is happening in DC Comics, they kind of all kind of feels like it ties together. It's got like a similar tone and maybe a message that all kind of works. Corporate synergy, if you will. And so the movie we are talking about, if that, I don't know, didn't clue you in at all, is going to be Wonder Woman, which just opened this past weekend uh, here domestically, and I do believe worldwide. I think it opened the same day worldwide. I think it may have opened a few other countries earlier, but yes. I know that uh, as of the time we're recording this, which is Sunday afternoon in America, uh, they have officially confirmed that it has made $100, $100 million domestically and $200 million worldwide, and that's not counting what it's made on Sunday. So I'd Ooh. say it's a definite summer hit so far. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And, of course, uh, this probably wasn't a record that was too hard to break, but I do know it is now the what highest opening weekend for a woman director so for patty jenkins she now holds that that record but i i mean i don't know if you would know I, i'd have to look it up i'd have no idea what other uh woman director what her highest grossing like oprah highest opening weekend would have been shockingly i'm not that well versed in movie trivia <laughs> compared to comic trivia but i think you're right i also vaguely remember glancing through twitter and seeing something about setting some kind of record for friday movie openings in June, which seems hard to believe, but I... Yeah, June's you know. a big movie month, yeah. Um, I did see that it already... I mean, here, this will be the last bit of, like, this is how great it is doing money-wise, but I did see that it also earned more in its opening night, so more in those Thursday night showings than King Arthur did, another film I recently reviewed, uh, in its entire opening weekend. Like, its whole, like... It may be even its whole run that it's been out so far, but that might be a stretch. That's that's aiming with faint praise because everybody I know who saw the King Arthur movie, including you, really didn't like it that much. Yeah, it's yeah, not here to talk about it, but just right. It, one, of, one of those movies that like you know it's not the worst thing I saw, but you man, you could have put that money to better use. You really could have. By contrast, I haven't come across anybody except for one person who has edit had anything negative. I mean, overall negative opinion wise, as far as the Wonder Woman movie goes. Oh, yes, most definitely. So if we want to talk just initially here, we're not going to get into spoilers right away, but we'll just talk our general general impressions. Um, and then those it, of you who have not seen it yet, who want to know our opinions, you can just go ahead and you know disconnect the podcast, go see the movie, and please, please go see this movie. It is amazing. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, full endorsement, most, yeah, most definitely. I mean, it is... It isn't just, you know, it's easily the best DC movie we've had since the Dark Knight trilogy, you know, depending which one you want to pick out of those three uh, is your favorite, because most people are either go with Batman Begins or Dark Knight. Uh, but it's by far the, the best DC film since those films. I'd go as far back to say this is the best superhero movie since Superman the movie. 
Ooh, ooh, high praise indeed. And, and those are two films that are there. This this Wonder Woman and Superman the movie. There's a lot of comparison being drawn between the two of them. There's a couple of clever visual references to Superman the movie in this that I picked up on the second time I saw it. But uh, well, minor spoiler. But there's a bit where when Diana is first dressed in civilian clothing, she is wearing a black trench coat and fedora and glasses. And it is pretty much the exact same thing that Clark Kent was wearing the first time we see him dressed down as, uh, you know, as Clark Kent. I hadn't even put that together. That's great. And they even have, again, this, these, these, those shots of her in that first civilian garb, like you can see those official photos. They show it in the trailer. But yeah, because she even has the, the specs on, the little glasses, uh, which is great because they have um, Etta Candy, who is a delightful... No small role. She's not as big as I wanted her to be, but I guess that kind of character is just never going to have a huge role in a movie like this. Um, but she delightfully makes that comment about, you know, you put specs on her and now she's not the most beautiful woman you've ever seen, which I thought that was great. Bit of a wink and a nod there. Uh, but I mean, overall, like it, over, it is just, it's, it's a refreshing movie, I guess, definitely for this day and age. And, it, and if we talk about it kind of hearkening back to Superman, the movie, um, and just maybe like a more... I don't know if I want to say more innocent time, because that kind of sounds not not quite right. Because I mean, especially this movie, I mean, it's taking place in like one of the uh, worst war zones that you can you can imagine, um, right there in the trenches in the Western Front uh, during World War One. So innocent doesn't really seem the right word, but it does kind of have that sense where it's a it's a different it's a different kind of superhero, I guess. That's what I can say, and that we haven't seen in a while. The, the word that I used, and I actually did think about this in uh, comparing Diana as a character to how she appeared in Batman v Superman, uh, innocent is not the right word. Naive, I think, is a bit more accurate. Yes, there we go. Where she is, I mean, she is new to man's world, but she is by no means an idiot. Like, she's had, you know, she's learned. She knows a lot of languages, which I thought was a neat touch to have in there. Yeah, which I'm not sure... And this kind of harkens back to the one thing that everybody does unanimously agree was great. Uh, the glimpse we get of Famascara and the Amazon culture. And Ooh, yeah. how, you know, the, the one thing that everybody has said so far about the sequel is, it's going to suck that we're not going to get to see more of that world. And that sounds like a song cue. I'm going to go all aerial in a moment. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it is... You know, we don't get much of a look at the culture, but what we do get to see is very well developed. You know, I mean, there's a definite society there, and some of the details in the movie just had me going like, okay, well, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Clearly, it does, but you know, like for the instance that they just throw away that whole bit about how Diana speaks all these languages and how the Amazons study all these languages, and I'm like, you know, the the comic geek in me is going. Okay, is that because they're going back to the George Perez conceit of the Amazons being all of the women who died by violence at men's hands being reborn? So all these women came throughout time and space to this one island, and they knew all these languages and started teaching each other? Or is it just they send scholars out into the world in secret, which doesn't really seem to fit what we know about the Amazons that being an insular society? No. and. So yeah, it does raise some, yeah, the, in, in, like any movie, right, we slowly start like picking it apart, like, oh, maybe that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But there is a, is definitely some questions about how, um, how that society like functions in the idea where they don't necessarily all look Greek. We have a very diverse group of Amazons, which I always would I appreciate, but you're right, like, 
so how does this society really, how did it come to be? I guess they were, we're told they were created by the gods, but then did those gods then give them an encyclopedia of all human history from now until the end of time? I don't, I don't know. And that does get into never spoilery point I wanted to discuss, so, you know, we'll put, put okay, a pin well, in, I, I guess, guess, but... Here, well, here, we can just get the last bit of our uh, general impressions. We, we both thoroughly enjoyed the movie. the movie. Love the movie. The story is great, it's uplifting, it's thrilling, and the performances, I really can't... Even if, you know, the one, my one real only drawback I have that most people are having is about with the villain, how the villain's storyline is handled, how it's, how it ends, um... That that is by no means like a real hit on the movie. Like the movie still works even with that kind of weak villain plotline in there. That that's a even fair those, assessment. And but even those performances are are good. Like really, all the performances are great. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. I mean, the ensemble on this is great. I know that the movie has gotten a lot of comparisons to Captain America, uh, the first Avenger, just because of how. You know, it takes place in a war zone. You have the group of soldiers around Diana, like how you have the fighting commandos. But honestly, they gave the soldiers in Wonder Woman so much more personality than the Howling Commandos. I mean, in the comics, the Howling Commandos are great characters. But in the movie, you've got the one tall guy wearing the bowler, and that's pretty <laughs> much all you remember. Right? Neil, is that Neil, Mc, how do you say his name? Neil McDonough? McDonough yes. You, yeah, that's his character. Um, you're right. That's like the dumb, only dumb one. I guess like him. Yep. And then him and uh, Bucky. And then Bucky doesn't really count as a Howling Commando because he's Bucky Barnes. Yeah. Uh, yes, I would say these. And, and so in my review, one thing I did, I felt that they were still not as fully developed. They were kind of sketches where we had our um, our the the Indian spy, uh, the Scottish uh, sharpshooter, and then the American Indian, like the indigenous American, Guy. Native American, whatever term. Yeah. Uh, they're kind of as a. An, well, on Wikipedia, they call him an opportunist, and I didn't want to just snag that word, but I wasn't quite sure what to call him. Kind of like a smuggler, I guess. And but the, but they were they had good camaraderie and they had great moments. Um, but I, I felt like, and, and again, this is just going to happen because it's Diana's story. I felt that more than say Steve Trevor, they were kind of there to like teach her a lesson or share a bit of you know insight into humanity, into the human culture. More so than they were like characters, but I'll agree they're gonna they're definitely more memorable than the Howling Commandos. They, those characters were like definitely like it could have been any soldiers. To to the point movie. where, and this was just my first thought when the Scottish sharpshooter showed up. It was like, oh, I didn't know that they're bringing in Garth Ennis characters for this. Oh really? <laughs> well, Garth Ennis wrote a story called uh, Adventures of the Light Brigade, which was pretty much his take on uh, classic military comics and. Except for two characters, all of them are all, you know, stereotypes who only say one line of dialogue over and over. Oh, okay. So it's you were like... It's Garth Ennis, so it is as gloriously messed up as you can imagine. But... Right, right. Oh, that's great. But I do, I did really enjoy their 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 characters. And I guess, okay, so we'll leave that now. We can kind of move into slightly more spoiler territory, because I just had this thought, um, speaking of uh, Ewan Bremner's character, which is the Scottish... Um, uh, marksman, he is—he's cl clearly there to be our character. He's a World War One soldier, and he is suffering from uh, PTSD. PTSD. He's got shell shock. That, that yeah. So I liked how they did that storyline and how they kind of twisted it. I think from what people would expect, he has the PTSD. There's a moment where he's like set up to be like taking the shot that's going to help them advance, and instead of 
later, I know, so in that moment he can't take the shot because he's just too um, rattled by the by the war that's going on around them. And I kind of expected, because this happens in so many movies, that later in the film there will be a moment where, you know, he'll have the saving play, where he will take the shot, like he'll regain his confidence. But this movie doesn't do that. They, uh, they kind of twist it around, and I love that scene where after having um, heard him singing the night before, then the next day when they're, I kind of forget how it comes up, but it comes up in some sense where they talk about him not, you know, right. not he, taking that shot. He's not going to come with them. He says, you know, I'm holding him back. And Diane yeah, says, yeah. but then who would sing for me? Exactly. Or who would sing for us? So whatever it was. And it was just such a sweet moment. And I think it just is so, you know, it really shows you her character. And I think what makes her so different is that she will see the value in him like they you know he's part of the group and like he does bring something to their group that will help them succeed even if it is just you know he Being, sings for them yeah yeah and he is well he was a pretty good well he may not have done any good sniping but he was a good spotter i mean he did pick out a lot Definitely. of danger from a distance so and i've known snipers who said that that can be more important in the long run than taking the shot but uh that's never here nor there but getting back to the whole subject of diana's uh you know, comrades in arms. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you said about how they all have this purpose and how they didn't really get much definition, uh, they're just sketches. And it's like, well, that is true to a point, but they all have a purpose in driving home the major point of Diana's arc, which is that Diana, you know, we see her as this girl, and she's obsessed with the idea of becoming a warrior and being the greatest warrior ever, and thinks that, you know, war is great because she, she's been raised on all these stories about all the great battles, all the heroism, all the Amazons going into fights, and, you know, she goes off with this very naive attitude about how, well, I'm going to find Ares, I'm going to, you know, save the world and kill everybody, and it's going to be great and wonderful and glorious, and the whole movie leading up into the final battle is about showing her that, you know, this is not all glory. This is not all epic stories. I mean, there are people who are caught in the middle of this. There are people who are suffering here. And each of the people in her group shows her different aspects of that. Like, in case, you know, as you mentioned, we have the Scottish sniper who is completely shell-shocked and can barely function uh, in general, much less, you know, taking shots. We have uh, the Indian who, you know, he talks about wanting to be an actor, and he is a spy master. He's a master of disguise. And Diana asks him, you know, well, why did you join this war when you have this great talent for doing something creative? And he says, you know, he basically says, because there are bad things happening out there. Mm -hmm. I feel I need to do what I can to help stop that, and if this is a way for me to use my talents to do that, I will. And then, of course, you've got Steve, who we never get into his background, but there's some definite implication that, you know, he's lost people, he's had a traumatic past, and that he has got into military service as a way of trying to work around that. And I was going to say, with Steve, I kind of, I hadn't even thought about that until you mentioned it, but we really do not get much of his backstory, and it doesn't seem to really matter. Um, since like the task at hand is what they are trying to accomplish, and it is his, um, I, I've, it is his obvious like grief and his sorrow and how upset he is over what is happening and how many people keep dying and how the war seems to never stop. Since at this point, I think is this, is this um, I guess we, I'm trying to think. Do we get a year for this? 
Anyway, I think I get the impression that obviously the peace treaty or the armistice is almost upon them, and we must be very near the end of the war. So it has been raging now for a few years. Yeah, they never dropped the actual year, but yeah. yeah so. But it, but I liked that 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 is what she saw in him. So she sees in him like his his empathy then for what is happening, and so that's what like drives her to be like, well, this is this has to be this has to be the fight. This has to be the fight that we need to as Amazons, you know, take upon ourselves. And I guess even you're right. The um, uh, the the American uh, Indian, the Native American who is in there, he he also his his was a little more rapid. Where he was talking about how he doesn't take any sides, and then in the next scene he's taking a side, um, and of course he's taking the allied side, the side of uh, of his group. But I did kind of like how, and they just dropped it in there quickly, where he he speaks of how he has no no nation anymore, no people anymore, and, you know, and Diana asks him, you know, what happened to it, and, and he gestures to Steve, like, well, his people wiped them out, and that kind of, again, sort of adds a a shade to her perception, I guess, of, of Steve and of humans in general, where they're, you know, she kind of learns they're not as completely wholesome or, in, in whole, or wholly good as she had hoped they would be. Right, because up until this point, she thought, well, clearly, you know, this one side is defending against this other side that has been taken over by Ares and is completely possessed. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of why they set this movie in World War One instead of World War Two, rather than, you know, yes, originally Dino was created as part of World War Two, and yes, that is a, whole, a huge, gigantic part of how superheroes came to be through the Golden Age and all of that. But ignoring the fact that World War II is just so overdone to begin with as far as the setting goes, I mean, not just in superhero movies, but just World War II is just overdone as a setting, there's not really a way to do that whole message about how there's never really an obvious bad guy in a conflict with, you know, when you're talking about the Holocaust and Nazis. I yeah, mean, when we're, you're Nazis, exactly. We're, we're too close to that. We're too far gone. But when you look at World War One, yeah, it was a horrible disaster and a lot of people got killed, but there's not really a way that you can point at one side and say, well, these were the good guys or these were the bad guys. It just pretty much became, well, my grandfather fought with your grandfather against these guys, so now we need to team up against them because they're jerks and just a whole bunch of feuds coming together at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just alliance after alliance that, like, yeah, people had, that different nations had had with each other, and so once, you know, one, two nations are going to blows, then all their allies have to go to blows with each other. Exactly, and that's kind of how it all blew up. Which, you can kind of see maybe how, well, okay, I guess now we can, now that we're talking about spoilers, we can kind of get into this discussion yeah. with the villain. Um, and there is a twist in this movie which apparently had been spoiled in some marketing, but I had either read, seen that and forgotten it or whatever. I when I When I was watching the movie, I really was, like, following, like, Ludendorff, this German guy. Like, sure, he's Ares. He's got this weird potion he has to huff to, like, keep himself energized because for whatever reason there's not enough uh, psychic war energy around him. I don't know. I bought into all of that. And then when the twist comes and you find out it's actually been Sir Patrick Morgan, I think his name is, David Thewlis' character. Yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, like, all right. Like, I was sort of okay with it, but it really came off to me like a twist for the sake of a twist. Just a bit, yeah. Although it does make a weird twisted sense that Ares would try and arrange a peace treaty, get everybody together, and then set up the mother of all betrayals so that there will never be any peace anywhere ever again. 
True, it does. Like, yeah, like I said, when I thought it through, I was like, well, it's, okay, it makes sense that he was that he was going to be Ares, but I, I don't know. I just felt it did feel like it came out of nowhere. And then to follow it up with another uh, kind of weird, like the the action in this movie is spectacular until you kind of get to this final battle, and it's yeah. just like CGI fire everywhere, and it's dark again. And he kind of, I, I thought it was a neat premise that he would just pull stuff around him, like bits from tanks and jeeps and things to make armor for himself, but it never looked that great. So yeah. I thought he was more imposing when it was just David Thewlis kind of like throwing stuff at her. Like that I thought was kind of neat, but they had to just, you know, it's it's a big budget movie. You got to go for a big CGI like monster to fight at the end. And, and, and just Ares, given his history in the comics, if we didn't see him in the big George Perez armor with the glowing eyes coming out of the all-concealing Roman helmet, yes. we, we wouldn't feel like it's, well, that's not really Ares, because otherwise you just have the, you know, skinny 50-something British <laughs> gentleman, you know, telekinetically yeah. throwing stuff at Diana, and, you know, yeah. visually, you know, with, with all due respect to the actor, that's just not as visually interesting as big hulking guy in armor, which... Right, right. I, I think that, I do agree with you, though, that, I mean... The whole fight when Diana goes into no man's land is amazing. I mean, oh, that, so that yeah. is the high action point of the movie right there. That whole bit. I mean, you just so get the ending, the ending where we wind up getting, and please forgive me for this comparison because I know it's going to be made, and the Zack Snyder CGI <laughs> festival that we get at the end. I was half expecting a group of Amazons from a Sucker Punch to come out of nowhere to help out at the last minute. <laughs> right. Yeah, they would, like, teleport there with, like, a boom tube or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's definitely not bad. And I think what actually ends up being more important is just how that, how that fight ends, right? Even though, like, when I say when it ends, it ends for me when she is realizing what it is that she's actually fighting for and how, like, she's not just fighting to kill Ares, she's fighting to protect all of those people who are there around her and the other people who are, are fighting and she has that moment when before she, you know, she doesn't throw the tank onto Dr. Poison, who was also kind of a weird character. I don't really know, like, for a character named Dr. Poison, you wanted to have a couple more cool scenes with her, but she's mostly just shown, like, cooking stuff up in her lab. But that was, I thought, a good, a good moment. So yeah. she doesn't kill Dr. Poison and then, you know, continues to take it out on Ares. Admittedly, I'm not as familiar with uh, Golden Age Wonder Woman as I should be, but I think that most of the Dr. Poison stories, she just had her minion spraying stuff around anyway, so her sitting around the lab while other people are doing the work may be in character, but I don't qu don't, don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah. So, like I said, again, it's not enough for me to uh, not like that part of the movie, but I right. was just sort of like, all right, well, she's fine, whatever. And, it's, and it is kind of funny that I, you know, I feel so many people are quick to call this, compare this movie, Wonder Woman, to movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I don't think is fair. Like, I feel like this film still strangely fits in with what we have had previously from the, cinema, the DC uh, Cinematic Universe, even if it is a, like, a huge step in the right direction, kind of away from the weird, grim convoluted crap they hadn't been doing well uh, it's funny you mentioned that i actually had discussion with a friend who sat through the movie and was astonished that there were no uh teasers at the end of the movie you know there's no post-credit sequence there was no 
you know, set up for the yeah. next movie. There was no, oh, come back in six months for Justice League. You know, Wonder Woman will return. And I said, that's because this movie is meant to stand on its own. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, oh, yes. you, you can watch this movie without having seen Batman be Superman. You may even like it better, having not seen Batman be Superman, because you don't have any of that baggage. You may be a little confused, because it does get framed um, with that photograph, which I thought, I mean, that made perfect sense. You see that photograph in Batman v Superman. You see that photograph, and you think, that looks like a cool story. I would love to know what's going on with that. And now we, and now we get it. Strictly speaking, though, you don't have to have seen Bruce find that photo before. And, yeah, you, the, the diehard comic fans will see that note and go, oh, okay, that's Bruce Wayne. But, strictly speaking, you don't need to know that. You don't have to know anything about the comics. Come into this movie and enjoy it. Oh, yeah. Which, which I... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was gonna say, which I'm not too sure, I'm sorry to say, that can be done with any of the Marvel movies anymore. I mean, you know, I do like them, but the Marvel movies have become so insular and interlocked that you know you can't just it's not like with uh, the original iron man movie where it stood on its own terms and was a mm -hmm. great movie on its own it's like you can't go into iron man 3 without having seen iron man 2 and everything else and knowing why yeah. tony has the ptsd that he has because of avengers age of ultron and everything right. that went into that and you know wonder woman it is a film. It is not part of a franchise. It is not part of a cinematic universe. It is its own film. Mm -hmm. And and I do. You're right. Like Marvel, Marvel can't do can't do a picture like Wonder Woman anymore because people. I mean, I just look and see what's coming up with um, Spider-Man: Homecoming, a movie I'm excited for and I'm hoping will do well. But I mean, they've got you know you have I, the Tony Stark is in that movie, and I know Tony Stark is not going to be a minor role in that movie. He's not going to pop in like Nick Fury. He's basically a co-star in this movie. So is um John yeah, he, Favreau's character Happy or whatever. So Happy he's Hogan, on one. Yeah. Of, yeah, he's on one of the freaking posters, which I thought was crazy. I was like, uh, this is just like Iron Man's assistant, and he's on a poster for Spider-Man. Um, but yeah, they're just they are they are too interlocked, which which is is a cool thing. I mean, I I absolutely loved uh, Civil War as most people did, and you can't get a movie like that without having watched everything leading up to it. Right. Um, but maybe I don't. I'm trying to wonder now if with what DC has coming up, they have. I mean, Justice League obviously, and Justice League will very much play like a sequel, I think, to Batman v Superman. I mean, we're picking up the storyline from there. But I wonder maybe about Aquaman, um, Flash, if they can ever keep a director. A director on it. <laughs> you know, those maybe those movies can kind of have a bit of what Wonder Woman did, but probably not because they won't be such prequels. Yeah, as far as The Flash goes, I just wish that they would give uh, Mark Guggenheim the budget, give him you know four months, Grant Gustin, do something with the budget to make it spectacular, because that's what we want anyway. I know, I know. I don't. Oh, that does make me sad. I wish we could get. I think I, they, you know, they've nailed it. I think on television, you know, Grant Gustin is amazing as Barry, and that story is wonderful, and it's obviously very popular. And we're I don't into know a whole why they... podcast topic there. We are, we are. So we'll, so we'll get off of from that. But yeah. Um, well, well, I, I, I think. Well, it's, I'm trying to think of like what are the last couple of things that I want to make sure I say. And besides the fact that Gal Gadot, I think I'm saying her name correctly, yes. is like. She is Diana. Even, she is, and she's even. I mean, I loved her again briefly in Batman v Superman. She was like a shining light in a mess of a movie, and 
she seemed to nail the character in those brief scenes we saw, but it wasn't nearly enough to really make a judgment call. Yeah. But holy crap, this movie, she blew me away. She really did. Yeah, she is going to be to this generation of women what Linda Carter was to our generation. And so, that does actually bring me up to, well, two things I did want to say. And one of them was the spoilerish point I wanted to say earlier. Uh, when Diana does the whole grand entrance into No Man's Land and leads that charge... And this is what I was going with before. The thing about this movie is that, that it defies all your expectations. I mean, you talked about how you were expecting the sniper to get that moment of redemption, and he didn't. I literally wept when I was watching this movie, because I was expecting when Diana was going, you know, throwing off her cloak, climbing the ladder in her full armor, and Steve did the whole one about, you know, this is no man's land, no man can cross it. <laughs> Yes. I was I just expecting the Eowyn line at any moment there, just the whole, I am no man, and they didn't do that. And I was like, oh, thank you. I did, too, exactly. The minute he said, yeah, no, yeah, no man can cross it, immediately in my head, I was like, well, she's no man. Like, that's what I said internally, but I am, I am very pleased it did not happen, because that just would have zapped, I think, all of the um, emotion from that scene. Because you just would have been so distracted by that, and you would have been making the comparisons, like you said, to Lord to Lord of the Rings, which is uh, not a bad comparison because that is no. you know one of the best moments in high fantasy. But still, oh yeah, and, and that moment is great in that movie, but I didn't need it in this movie, right. and especially with what follows. And it really is like I I'm, I can't wait until I'm, I'm sure of it. Within a matter of weeks, they will probably release that No Man's Land sequence online. They tend to do that once they people have had a chance to go and see the movie. And then I could just watch it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing I did like about this movie, just as a weird note from somebody who has read a lot of Wonder Woman comics, and I actually did teach a panel on Wonder Woman history, and I read a fair bit about this going in uh, when I was preparing that. The thing that astonished me most about this movie is the fact that Steve and Diana are largely treated as equals. Oh, yes. Um, I would say, I, and I think I, I put this in, in my review, it taught me about like, the equality in this film or I feel like that is her Wonder Woman's like real message is she is very egalitarian she doesn't show up she's not she hasn't come to prove that she can do it better than anyone else I mean there's an obviousness when it comes to her powers like and 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 Steve recognizes that but she also has you know reasons to rely on them that she needs them part of it being her unfamiliarity with what's really happening and the intricacies of uh of diplomacy and war and like how you can't just barge in like when she's trying to you know kill Ares at that at that banquet and he keeps trying to tell her that we can't play it that way and it kind of does fall apart <laughs> right well I didn't mean just because of the whole balance between uh, Diana's naivete and her idealism balancing out Steve's worldliness and cynicism but just the fact that you look at so many of the original Golden Age uh, William Marsden comics Steve is basically you know, this hapless idiot who Diana has to keep saving. Yes. And yeah, they just flip the damsel thing. Exactly. Yeah, they, they flip the damsel thing, and that happened a fair bit too, where you wind up having, you know, Steve basically being the, uh, you know, the damsel in distress, only the dude in distress. And then after uh, Marsden died, and I forget what writer took over Wonder Woman after that, but he was mostly famous for writing Sergeant Rock, and then... For the next decade, Wonder Woman was basically written like a military comic, or mixed with a Superman comic, where, well, it's really the adventures of Steve Trevor and his secretary, Diana Prince. <laughs> and they had this whole, you know, the whole stupid tri love triangle between, 
you know, Steve loves Wonder Woman, but Diana Prince is right there, and he doesn't pay attention to the girl wearing glasses. Cliche. And Diana right. is going home and crying because Steve does not appreciate who she really is. And, and then, you know, it really did not work on any level. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, I have really have to hand it to, well, I, my impression is that this script went through uh, countless rewrites, but who gives credit is of Alan Heinberg, um, which off the top of my head, I'm not entirely familiar with what else he has written, but I have to hand it to them that they there were so many pitfalls this movie Wasn't could have Wasn't he the writer fallen. on Gilmore Girls? I would believe it. I could even just take this moment to type his name in here, and we'll see what comes up besides Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, well, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I have the right person, there's actually a whole lot of uh, comic book work in his... So am I looking at the right person? Let's find out. Uh, yes, you were uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, also worked on Sex and the City, Party of Five, Grey's Anatomy, Scandal. So, I mean, definitely somebody who is familiar with writing uh, women characters in media intended for female audiences. And I think that certainly comes comes through. And it is it doesn't come through in a way like um, I think about. Okay, so there's a scene with ice cream, right? In this Wonder Woman movie, it's very. You know, it's a short, like, cute little scene where she gets ice cream and she likes it because who doesn't like ice cream? Yeah. And I just think about that in contrast to the ice cream scene in the failed Wonder Woman pilot um, from a few years ago, which I never had had actually seen. So I am, this is off of uh, hearsay, but that there's a moment in that uh, pilot where, like, Wonder Woman goes home and, like, cries into a pint of ice cream. So see how you can use the same thing, but you can present them in such different ways uh, as not to fall into a horrible stereotype. I don't want to become the mansplainer here, but <laughs> yeah, you do have a you do have a point about that comparison between the Wonder Woman pilot, which I haven't seen it myself either. Uh, I heard too many bad things about it. I watched yeah. somebody else's review of it that uh, Channel Awesome did a rather hilarious breakdown of it. That uh, well, maybe I'll include the link to that as part of this, but. That whole uh, bit with the kit, with the uh, ice cream, was actually a callback to the Justice League number one, New 52 book. Well, actually, I think it was Justice League three or four, but it was part of the first Justice League arc when Jeff Johns was writing the very first assemblage of the Justice League. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole scene in that where, you know, the dark side is invading Earth, parademons are coming through boom tubes. And Steve Trevor is being shouted at, you know, because his job at this point is he's Wonder Woman's handler. And he's being right. you know, told, where do you, you know, go get Wonder Woman, where is she? And Diana is just out walking around, enjoying the day, you know, having ice cream with this little girl and talk, because Diana has never had ice cream before. And she's talking mm-hmm. about how ice cream is the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> and Steve is trying to get her to go, yes, it is, but I need you to go help save the world now. Right, I need you to be Wonder Woman. They actually put in the Justice League War animated movie that was based on that one as well. That's what I kind of remember, because I don't know if I had, if I, I know I read the first issue when, like, Rebirth came out. I read the number ones on just about all of them, but I remember the, the animated film more so. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I have, I mean, yeah, I guess just kind of, like, to sum this up, I mean, this movie. They this drew on a lot of different great. random sources. They did, and it's a good it's a good blend, and it's a good, I mean, this would be a good introduction, you know, for anybody. If anybody has seen this movie and then is like, I want to read more Wonder Woman, you could send them, you could send them toward George Perez. You could send them towards the new Rebirth stuff. You could send them to the, um, Gail Simone. Oh, Gail Simone, of course. Uh, you could also send them to the, uh, there was the, 
Legend of Wonder Woman. It was a digital series first, and now they it's just available in print. That out. In yes, fact, and that's I, a great introduction. In fact, I recently wrote a reader's guide for the website noflyingnotights.com. It has not been published yet, but there will be a reader's guide for uh, people who are interested in finding out what Wonder Woman books are available and which ones would be the best for which age ranges. Excellent. Uh, should be up shortly. If anybody is interested in that, pop me an email. I can make some recommendations. Yes. Oh, yes, I'm still, we, I'm still we playing librarian. Sure. We can link to it, I'm sure. Once it's up, sure. So that would be a great resource. So, yeah, like, this movie kicks, kicks ass. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, really. <laughs> I'll agree with that. There's only one problem I had with it. Mm-hmm. And that Apart is... Apart from the aforementioned... Well... Right. Mentioning Gail Simone, uh, when they have the whole bit where they thank all of the writers who have worked upon the character, Gail Simone's character, or her, Gail Simone's name is left off that list, along with Trina Roberts, oh, the yeah. first, the first uh, artist to work on Wonder Woman when it was a monthly book. And don't get me wrong, there's some great creators on there, but it's just very weird that they credit uh, Greg Rucka and Brian Azzarello, when I'm pretty sure Gail wrote the character longer than Brian Azzarello did, even though the movie did draw a little bit off of his New 52 stuff with Diana's background as a daughter of Zeus in this a reality. A bit, a bit. Oh, okay, so I want to touch on that. But, okay, well, quick note, but the Amazons in this, the High Council following Hippolyta, they're pretty much taken directly from the Wonder Woman animated movie that Gail Simone wrote. Yes. Oh, that yeah. is great. Uh, that is definitely great. Yeah, I've, Artemis, Philippitus, you know, all, all the high council there. Yeah, that is, a, that is a good movie that I would certainly also recommend to anybody just craving to watch more Wonder Woman, especially since there's so little you can actually watch. You know, it's not like she has a billion uh, animated films like Batman does. Um, but, hey. but yes, I did want to briefly. What do we? Oh, her with her origin. Okay, the movie starts out. She's always told the tale. She's made of clay. Then brought to, was brought to life by Zeus. And I was trying to recall now. Do we get an actual confirmation at any point that she is now like the daughter of, like as in um, some sort of coitus had to have occurred between Hippolyta and Zeus? Does that happen, or is it just kind of inferred as the movie goes along and we? It's revealed that she herself is the god killer. There's no. I not think the it, I think it's just inferred from that because you know Greek mythology, Zeus, he was I mean, a player. Yeah, he, he was, and he was like, and he would do it in any way. Like he would become a swan and do it that way, and exactly. So. So the idea that he would totally have it, you know, father a child with the Amazon queen in order to create, you know, the ultimate living weapon, that totally is something Zeus would do. Heck, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky that Diane actually did turn out to have a measure of his power. Because, you know, Zeus would tell you, and you're sure that my daughter will be a hero? Uh, yes! Now, <laughs> come to Daddy yeah, right? Zeus. Yeah, he just frames it as the uh, giving her this amazing weapon. But no, you're right, he was just looking for looking for some. That's all, that's all he's interested in. But, but that is one thing about the mythology of this that did bother me a little bit. The whole idea that all of the Greek gods are dead except for Zeus and Ares and Zeus apparently is dead now so he, yeah you and that's what i mean they kind of they kind of set it up like he used the last of his power to like create diana but you know so i guess it was just like one one more for the road but and it, it, it did just bother me though because in the original mythology of wonder woman it was always you know the goddesses that were empowering her and that's one thing that this carried over that kind of bothered me from the new 52 is that 
the whole idea in the Perez days was that Diana was being, you know, blessed by the goddesses, you know, the beauty of Aphrodite, the wisdom of Athena, all of that. And then in this, in the New 52 reality, where is all of her power coming from? Her daddy is Zeus. She got trained by Ares. Two yeah. men giving the most prominent female heroine all of her power and training. Well, That's and a I little problematic. It is, and I didn't continue with the new 52 run. Like, I, you know, it was like the first six or eight issues, something like that, and then after a while I was like, oh, the artwork is great, but I can't, I just wasn't digging it as much as I wanted to. So, and you, so I you, didn't... you bailed on it before they got to the part where they revealed that, oh, no, yeah, they're, they're still totally ordinary children on Paradise Island because they send out a boat full of naked women every oh, 20 years and the looting I, and raping happens. I want to think, I, I think I bailed out around the time I found, I think that's when it was, I'm not sure, but I know I didn't get to the point where it was revealed that the bracers that Diana is wearing is so to contain her massive power because she could not possibly control it. And I kind of, when I heard that, I was like, that's problematic. I don't really like that. And so I was glad that that didn't really show up in this movie. Yeah, you know, that she one... the power with her bracers, but it's not shown to be like, oh, she has to have these on here to like keep her, keep her, you know. So kind of like the Phoenix thing, like, oh, you know, she can't control her Phoenix power, so we need to, like, well, mess her mind up. That one unfortunately is part of the older Wonder Woman stories, and they had the whole thing where if the Amazons were not wearing, you know, the bracelets of submission, then they would all go berserk and start killing everyone. Oh, okay, okay. So but that is by the same token, to... they also didn't leave in the whole thing about, and I actually did read a rant from some guy online who was upset about this, about how they did not have any of the whole, you know, if her hands are bound by a man, she becomes completely powerless. You right, know, they did stuff. Yeah, which, glad, I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah, because they haven't it. touched that since, like, the early 80s at latest. Right. And that is because, I mean, like, there is, some, there is some complicated stuff going on with Wonder Woman's... Uh, you know, her whole deal and the idea of like this willing submission, this loving submission that people that I, I feel like a lot of people would just read as like just kind of BDSM and like her being chained up. And that's all it is for like for thrills. But to be fair, you know, that was an element to a lot of Golden Age comic art. It, but yeah. Still. Yeah. And on that note, as long as we're making recommendations, don't bother with Wonder Woman Year Earth One, the Grant Morrison one, because it's. I think he spiked his Red Bull or something that day when he started writing that one. <laughs> Again, beautiful artwork. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of Wonder Woman stories that have beautiful artwork that then, eh, like I said, I do think back, like, on Cliff, is it Cliff Chang? How you say his yeah. name? Yeah, like, on the, stuff uh, on the so Azarella great. one. Uh-huh. And I forget who did uh, Wonder Woman Earth 1, but it was another great artist, and it was like, Wow, this is beautiful. Shame that they're being wasted on writing Grant Morrison's bondage fic. Yes, yes, exactly. It's like, oh, well. But you know what? We've got a great Wonder Woman movie. Yep. In my opinion, we've got a great Wonder Woman comic going on right now. It's like, it is a great, it's just a great time, I think, to be a Wonder Woman fan. And I'm just loving how this, this not only is the movie performing really well and being very well received, I feel like it is kind of like spurring this moment. You see a lot of, um, on social media, like people who... I think probably don't go see every superhero film that comes out like we do. They're making a point to go out and see Wonder Woman. One, because it's like, oh, Wonder Woman, I know that character. I can't tell you anything about her, but they, they, they recognize her, they know her, and it's the positive response. I mean, that's definitely driving people to the theater. I just hope that when Wonder Woman 2 comes out, we get to see the invisible jet. That, I mean, at the very least, I mean, you could, you could adapt that in some really 
cool, crazy ways that wouldn't be so silly as people, I think, think, you know, when you think of the Invisible Jet, they think of it as a joke. Or so silly as me saying, let's see the Invisible Jet. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that probably wraps up our Wonder Woman podcast. I think it's so. A, it's a fantastic movie. Go see it. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Keep checking us out on Kaboom. We're going to hopefully keep these podcasts going. They may not always be movies. I'm sure we're going to talk about comics at some point, considering we are a comic book website primarily. Yeah, that'll be it. So signing off, uh, again, my name is Sarah Moran. I'm the editor-in-chief of Kaboom.com. That is five O's in Kaboom. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Sarah This Is. And I am Matt Morrison. I am the contributing editor of Kaboom.com. That's five O's, no apologies. Got to get mm-hmm. the tagline in there. And you can follow me on Twitter at Geeky Geeky Ways. Yep, that's not going to work. Please put the sword down. It doesn't go with the outfit. At all.